You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is The Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right, I just uh, pushed the red button without you being prepared, so get that last gulp down, Bracken. You have the loudest gulp in all the land. Thank you. You're welcome. I don't say that to many people. Actually, nobody ever, <laughs> except this this time right here. Um, hey, you, uh, you getting sick of Minnesota yet? It's hot. It's a delightful place, but it's hot. Yeah, it's so much different than Wisconsin over the river. You were here this weekend again, so that makes mm-hmm. it like two out of three weekends you've been close to me, although I didn't see you this time. You had other uh, another agenda. You know, you're just far enough from the city now that it's... Inconvenient. It's a chore to make schedules align, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I really only had one time slot that would have worked, and that would have been Sunday morning. Mm. Did it, How'd it go? It was good. It was a good trip. It was, it was a success. For us, we did a lot of things, but also had a lot of downtime with him, and it was just a good time alone with just Brayden. Did everything that we intend to do, made all our flights. Yesterday was close. We got a an update that our flight was delayed mm. significantly, and then two hours later, an update that it was no longer delayed, which is always tricky to uh, to decide, no, we don't need to go to the airport yet, and then find out, no, you should have already left. Yeah, shoot. We got it. Nice. But Bracken took his oldest son, Brayden, for his golden birthday to a car show in Minneapolis. And you were just here a week and a half ago for my wedding. So mm-hmm. it's just like when it rains, it pours. But shoot. We were busy at a, yep. a a rock concert. So we were occupied up here. I got a video from you. Uh-huh. Jess was rocking out. Oh, she was hitting it hard. It was an 80s cover band called Hairball. And they, they toured nationally. And they just... They get in in uh, costume, we'll call it, and they look the part of all the Haiti eighties hair bands. Anything from Bon Jovi to Kiss to anybody you can think of. It was uh, it was decent. I had an oddly good time. It's great people watching too when you go to something like that. Oh yeah, so we spent some time at the Mall of America. <laughs> you don't need to say anymore. <laughs> There's some some people watching there. Uh-huh. What mall needs three Victoria's Secrets? It's it's just a big mall. Is that what it has? I don't know. I think so. I like that you know that. Yeah. We'll move on. We we went there, to be clear. We weren't there to, like, shop. We went for, to the aquarium. We did Legoland. And then they have a go-karting facility in the mall. So we hit those three things up. Cool. It's a fun. You can actually spend a day there on the fourth floor. They have, like, the restaurants, bars. They have some a theater. They have all mm-hmm. sorts of stuff up there. But... Um, I want to get your opinion, Bracken, on something, and then we'll hop into today. So on the top, okay. uh, so to fill you guys in, I raced a 5K a month ago on the track, the Tracksmith 5000, uh, a Twilight 5000. And I'm pretty sure they owe me royalties because I've gotten about a dozen screenshots of people that have signed up because they heard an episode and nice. said I'm going to the next one. But I'll let it slide. And the last time I raced, which was four weeks ago, as of tomorrow, uh, we had a big heat wave come through, and I think it was 89 or 87 degrees at start time. We didn't start till after 10 p.m., and I thought, well, you can't. And then it's it came back a month later, which would be tomorrow, as you're listening to this on a Tuesday. Well, as luck has it, another heat wave hits today. Excessive heat warning on top of my 
uh, weather app, and it says it's going to be high of 98 and a low of 75 on Wednesday. And so the excessive heat warning goes until 11 p.m. on Wednesday night. And my 5K is set to go at like 9 o'clock on Wednesday night. What Do you do anything different in this circumstances? You just show up and race and just be like, you know, we got bad heat that's going to impact time, but racing is racing. So it is what it is. Is that all you can do at this point? I think so. Yeah. And we have the same thing. And originally I was thinking about going up to Minnesota this week to run that 5K with you. But since we just went up there, I just... You know, didn't do any work Friday. I can't justify another trip to Minnesota right. th- two days after getting home from the previous one. So I'm not going. Right. But I suddenly it's close. And I thought all that advice I gave you about, listen, you're not going to be your fastest, but it'll be fine. Just go race. Put it out of your mind. It hits a little different when the temperature is what it is. We have the same thing. We're looking at 97 and 98 back-to-back days, high humidity. And my thought was, well, maybe I'll time trial at the same time you're running. Ooh. That way I'm not just sitting and waiting for Jess's stories and I'll get a feel for it and thinking a time trial when it's still going to be 90 at nine at night, mm-hmm. that's going to be brutal. It puts into perspective that it's not just as easy as, as just go do it. But I think it necessitates getting out a little less aggressively. Mm-hmm. I think you have to build into it because when you tip, you tip quicker. 100%. When you tip, you, you it's like a cliff dive. Pew! It happens pretty bad. And it happened to people mm-hmm. last last uh, race. But, of course, I, I'm going. It's more like, as, as those of you listening know, I've been on this journey to close the gap on 15 flat in the 5K. Uh, and it's like, I'm not good enough. I don't think I'm not good enough to do it under any sort of circumstance. Right? Like if there's a 20 mile an hour wind, I'm probably screwed. If there's 90 degree temperature with high humidity, I'm probably screwed because my ceiling isn't 1445. If anything, my ceiling is 1459 at best. And then to have heat, it's just tough, right? Like I have this large goal and I don't think I'm getting dealt the conditions to do it. But no, you're not. Racing is going to be great regardless. It's just like an interesting thing. I'm like, what are the chances? We had a month in between of some nice, cool weather, some great workouts in 65 degrees, and then it comes back. So it's just a little ironic. Not that it really matters, but here's our weather for this week. We go 76, 80, 99, Hmm. 91, 78, 71, 72. (laughs) What is that? We go from 70s to 99 back down into the 70s. It's just such a blip. And the fact that you hit two blips on race weekends or race weeks, four weeks apart, is kind of crazy. It is. It is. I'm sure the people in the South are rolling their eyes at us because I get athlete check-ins who are like, it's 104 again today. And they're just like, Kirk, you're a wimp. Suck it up. But um, I guess perspective is everything. There's a couple Texas athletes that I work with. Uh, One, Joyce. She said, hey, this was last year when we first started up. She's like, I'm sorry, but we can't program sled work until probably September because my gym only has the sleds outside and the the sleds are too hot to touch (laughs) during the summertime. (laughs) So they just can't even touch their metal (laughs) objects outside, which we saw at Grit Games, right? Mm -hmm. So we just, we couldn't do that type of sled work for like eight weeks because it was, it was just a non-starter. That's funny. Put on gloves. It's a problem we don't deal with. We don't. Well, the heat is, you know, we talked, we were considering doing an episode on the heat today, which we're not because we have done that before. But the uh, track and field world champs in Budapest, Hungary are going on right now. And heat's a theme there. Uh, 
you know, first of all, if you got some cross training or treadmill time and you want to pull up YouTube, they got most everything on under NBC Sports for the World Track and Field Champs. They got everything, I believe, through well, that we're recording on a Monday, but really good watching. They, they cut every race to about eight to nine minutes is what I've noticed between the interviews after or if it's like the 10K, they'll button it up. Um, so they're putting that stuff out there. So go watch. But there they're racing like the 1500 meter heats were done in 92, 93 degrees, I believe. And people were still running fast. Mm-hmm. Like the times, especially in those shorter races, I've been very impressed with how fast they're still running. So it's clearly it doesn't impact people as much as we like to gripe about in the short stuff yeah i think the 10k was brutal and you saw that you saw some good people just get yep. dropped because they couldn't handle dropped. it but i i thought it was interesting i thought of you during cole hawker's interview after the prelim cole hawker uh made it through to the final ran well you said before this he's this is his medal chance yep and i thought he might get bounced early because we haven't seen a lot of him but he's proving you right he's he's fit He's focused. He's ready. But the announcer or the the interviewer said something about the warm-up or about the heat. He said, Mm -hmm. in the the heat, how do you handle it? He goes, you know, I don't think it really affects us too much during the race, but it sure doesn't make the warm-up nice. That's exactly what he said. I just watched that on the assault bike about an hour ago, that exact interview. So tip of the hat to you, Cole. And I think he's trajecting nicely. I think that he's not burnt because he hasn't been able to race like as as frequently as some of these other guys. So if somebody's going to pull it mm-hmm. off and sneak one in there and in, in the podium. I think it it would be him based just on the fact that he's actually, he's not worn thin like a Yared Nagus who's been racing high level since December from what I can mm-hmm. understand. But those two are interesting because Yared was our best 1500 meter runner in college and then didn't run at, was it the Olympics? He qualified through and didn't run. I don't think he had the time because qualifier. he was injured. He thought he could get there. No, it was either Olympics or Worlds. He qualified, accepted his spot, hoping he could get healthy in time. Made the trip there and then scratched during his warm up. He's like, "I'm not healthy enough. I can't do it." Oh, and now he's been super healthy and racing a lot and super well. Where at the time, Cole Hawker had raced something like 37 times since January coming off of his college season and just rolled, kept his peak all the way through the Olympics and PR'd and took like sixth, I think, at the Olympics in the finals in the 1500. And now we have the the reverse of those two situations. He's been injured and then didn't race much this year. And Yard's been just racing everything. So they're arriving at the world championship final having done the exact opposite buildup of the previous cycle. And so it will be interesting probably for both of them to see how this works out for them. Because Cole, instead of maintaining this long peak, is coming in rested and specifically peaked for this, whereas Yard has raced a ton. And we haven't seen that from him in the past. Yeah, that's true. We could do a whole episode just bullshitting about the state, the the fields in these races. It's so it's such a mm-hmm. privilege to have access to that stuff. Like it's just, especially if you're a cross trainer for some of your days, like I am. Oh my goodness, it's it's really nice to have. But I will say, Yared has been able to race relaxed in these uh, yes. whatever you want to call it trials um, and rounds type racing, which is kind of important. So you you can only really empty the tank really empty the tank i think a handful of times in a season and i don't think he's had to do that yet here so we'll see yeah we'll see it's fun um okay should we jump into it so we can give this this topic some lip service um so uh west virginia spartan race west virginia is coming up this weekend i know not all of you race spartan or ocr but this topic is applicable to you uh as well you pure runners road runners trail runners 
Um, and that is managing your effort for long races. How do I manage my effort for a long race? And I, I'm sure you've gotten a few. I've gotten four or five just in the last couple of days. Like, hey, West Virginia's coming up. How do I approach the race? How do I manage my mm-hmm. effort for this coming up? And everybody seems to be real apprehensive about uh, energy expenditure and what to do in a race that's, for most everybody, this race is going to be two and a half to three and a half hours for the competitive fields. Um that's long duration. And so because it's top of mind, uh, and I did get one specific question about the swim, if anybody who is racing would like to, uh, I don't know, maybe hear that out as well. But anyways, managing your effort for long races, that's what we're chatting about today. And this is a very tricky topic, and especially in the two different ways we're talking about, because I think there's two styles of long races. There's a style of long race that happens in a fixed duration and a relatively known duration. So like a road half marathon, you know, it's going to be roughly 13.1 miles and you know, okay, I can probably keep eight to eight fifteen pace there roughly. The, the question there is if I think I can do more, what do I start out at? When do I start pushing? If I start hurting early, when do I pull back? But you're dealing with fixed numbers mm-hmm. and there's just a little leeway either side. And then you have the opposite side, which is off-road racing, which I would include OCR in there. Uh, And it's probably even more glaring there, which is we know the distance is about 13.1 miles, but the time domain could be two to three and a half hours. And so we have to cover the duration, but because of the other things that are going to break our rhythm and force us to not just be running in a smooth straight line the whole time, we have to work for the duration more than you have to work for the distance. And that becomes Mm -hmm. very difficult for people to manage. So both sides of that coin there, I think, require the correct really execution in order to have success yes and one is uh not that neither are terribly straightforward because sometimes in long races you're entering uncharted territory like Mm -hmm. okay i've never run a marathon before and my longest long run has been 20 miles like i don't even know what my body's gonna do the last six miles and then in a trail race of course like some years the spartan race world championship is one in two low two hours and then some years it's been one over three hours it's very confused like you don't know how long you're going to be out there i think for sake of conversation let's just segment this let's talk about the controlled environment managing your effort for a long race on let's just use the road marathon for an example we can spend a little time talking about that and then the majority of time talking about let's say varied terrain like a west virginia or a trail mountain race or something like Mm -hmm. that so are you cool starting on the roads or controlled environment anyways very much so all right so why don't you kick it off? Well, I think that it's it's difficult for both. Well, the thing that they share in common is that the longer the race, the longer it takes for your bad or good decisions to be proved. Like if you start out too fast or or correctly, it might take 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 90 minutes even to find out if you made the right decision or not. Or in a mile or in a 5K, you know relatively quickly. You'll adjust lap by lap. Every 400 meters, you're checking in like, oh, I don't know. This suddenly feels drastically different. In a marathon, you might start out and mile one through nine, you might not feel. And you might not feel mile one through nine, whether you're running right at your, let's say your goal pace is seven minutes. You might not feel miles one through nine if you're at 640, seven or 720. You might not feel really any different through there. So it's really tough to use your RPE or just feel the pace because you can't feel it. You're in this crazy situation where 
your race day, you're in your race shoes, you had your race breakfast, you've had your race level of caffeine, you're surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of people. And it makes it impossible to gauge your pace. And running in a pack is probably the hardest way to gauge your pace because they do so much of the work for you and you're hearing all these other, there's just so much stimulus going on that it's hard to focus on exactly what your body's doing. And you don't know oftentimes for at least an hour if you made the right choice or not. Yeah. And to piggyback that in the situation you're talking about, the delayed effect, right? Did I miscalculate or not? Um, Generally, if you find that you have miscalculated, Maybe your regression is very soft at first, but you typically cliff dive. The problem is, is when it happens, it happens hard and then the wheels fall off and then you go from running seven minute pace in your marathon to 830 the last couple of miles. And it's like the time is just, there's a hole that is just bleeding, bleeding, bleeding out. So I think managing your effort is definitely as crucial in both circumstances for sure. But you're right. There's a delayed, there's a delayed effect the feedback response in a 1500 mm-hmm. meters or even in a 5k is minutes. If it's if not, not seconds. seconds. Yeah. <laughs> in longer races, it's not. So it's not as clear. Um, so let's use the marathon for the example. Why don't we just use the marathon okay. straight up? Um, uh, and you're right. The difference between, let's say your body is capable to flat road marathon. Conditions are fine. So let's just take conditions out of the equation. They're good conditions. We will assume, um, Running your, let's say, goal or realistic pace versus running five seconds per mile faster may not seem like a big difference, but in a calculated race where you know exactly what you're getting, you can ride just under that line for a little too long and then suddenly (laughs) realize that, whoops, I'm in trouble. And now your seven-minute goal or your pace, which you were accidentally running 655s, turns into 720s on the back half and you end up running slower than you wanted. So um, those little differences end up adding up compounding interest, I would say, in the last third of a race like that. So you really do need to be dialed with pacing in a longer race, in my opinion, or heart rate. It's some sort of physiological metric in which you are monitoring from the very beginning. Uh, so heart rate in combo with pacing, but you're going to have to be very attentive is what I'm getting to, to what's happening, checking in often, especially on pacing, check, 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 cross-reference it with your heart rate. If you're looking to nail execution. So we're looking at like, we're looking very data focused in a calculated race in which like a road marathon would be. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. And in the people oftentimes will hear someone's race report. Like I was trying to run seven minute and I ran six fifty five for the first 10 and I felt great. And then I crumbled like, well, who cares? It was five seconds. Well, the fact is your body doesn't know or care about the pace you're running. It knows what it's costing you. It knows the effort. Right. And the systems that you're working on don't say, all right, we're four seconds away from tipping over. It's just we're approaching our line. And if those four seconds or three seconds or two seconds take you up to your line, that's all that matters. So the difference between seven minute and 658 on paper is two seconds. But to your body, it's a canyon. It's a massive gap. So knowing your body very, very intimately in terms of what it can do for effort and pace is really, really paramount for a marathon, for any sort of long race. And the more fit you are, 
generally the more dialed in you are with your effort and your pace because it means you've spent more time running long runs and quality workouts to figure out what can I sustain. So the more fit you are, the more you can ride the line of going out at right around what I know I can maintain. And the Mm -hmm. less fit you are, the less dialed in you are, the more you have to err on the side of caution. Because either way, the, the, the check comes due. Like your bill will arrive to you. And what you want to find out is that, oh, I can cover this. And I still have money left. Mm-hmm. Like What you want your worst case scenario to be is, I have exactly enough money to pay this bill. I can finish this race at this pace. What you don't want to find out is, I can't cover this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go into debt in this race because the longer the race is, the more that debt cracks you. So getting the bill and realizing I have enough money for this and then I can start spending afterwards is the goal for every single long race. doesn't matter how fast or slow you are. When the bill comes due, you must be able to cover your debt. So the less fit you are, the more you have to be cautious early on. And the more fit and dialed in you are, the more you get to try to match your bill to exactly how much money you have. Yeah, that's well said. And I think there's a whole segment of our listeners who like, we're talking like heart rate and pacing, like you might not be dialed in enough to know and that's okay. Then you err on the side of caution. You don't spend too much money too soon Mm -hmm. and you just go out there and conserve until you realize uh, you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, and then you leave whatever is left in your bank account out there. So there's a whole segment where you don't necessarily need to be as dialed in, like the RPE, rating of perceived exertion, does apply. I think in these longer races, the RPE can stab you in the back for the cal- even for like the calculated yes. folks, like like in a in a 5K or under. I think RPE is a fair gauge. I think anything that doesn't require you to stay in threshold for the for a long amount of time, I think RP is a great gauge. Mile, 5K, maybe even the 10K for world-class athletes. Maybe. RP, great. The marathon or long distances, it becomes a little more cloudy. If we're talking about nailing a pacing and a time for a yeah. controlled road race. Um, so if you were to race a marathon then, like walk me through like, I guess I could do the same for me. Walk me through what you would be doing from the time the gun goes off to the time you hit the finish line. I know what I would be doing, but walk me through it. What would you do? Okay. I'm going to preface this by saying that we have talked to countless athletes who have run marathons and then read reports or seen stories of countless more. And the single most common race report is... I felt so good for blank yep. for X amount of time. I just felt so good. And then something started happening that's never happened to me before. The narrative is everything was great, but this weird thing happened. Well, what happened is that you caused the weird thing to happen because you've never tried doing that thing before. You've never tried running 15 seconds faster per mile for the first 13. And then, yeah, that weird thing popped up. Mm-hmm. It didn't happen in training because you didn't run that in training. So... What we always hear is that it felt way too good early. Rarely do you feel just terrible from the start in a marathon. If you do, you're probably an elite athlete. Mm -hmm. Really, you only hear that from people who are incredibly out of shape or incredibly in shape that I was just flat today and I don't know why. You almost never hear that. You always hear, I just felt great for the first nine miles and then weird stuff started happening. So the goal is to avoid that. So the first thing I'm doing, if I'm running a marathon, Prior to it starting, I'm asking myself the question, what pace can I keep the entire time no matter what? Let's say that is seven minutes per mile. What is the pace I think I could manage the entire time Mm. if I have a fantastic day? Let's say that's 6.45. 
I know that it would take the sun, the moon, the stars, everything to align to hit that. So I do not go out at that pace. If it is seven minutes that I know, no matter what happens, good day, bad day, medium day, I can run that all day long. That's the pace I start with. And maybe even 7.05. And if it opens up downhill a little bit, I still run seven-minute pace. Mm-hmm. And if it feels great, there's a pack ahead of me running 6.55 and I'm on my own running seven-minute pace. I stay on my own running seven-minute pace. All the excuses, people are like, well, I was going to run seven-minute pace, but there's a 6.55 pack and there were 13 of them. And it was just like great running with them. We felt so good. Yeah, and then you all crumbled. So you, it, every excuse, you ignore it and you stick to that seven-minute pace right up until whatever pre, preordained point I've decided where I'm allowed to get to work. Maybe it's 10 miles. Maybe it's an hour. Maybe it's the half marathon. Maybe it's mile 16. Maybe it's 18. There's going to be checkpoints along the way with how do I still feel off seven minute pace and am I allowed to start working faster now? Because if you run seven minute pace for 13 miles and then you run 645 for the next 10 and then you close down at 630, you're going to run almost 645 pace for the entire thing. Mm -hmm. It'd be a little slower than that, but that's almost your perfect day scenario without having to run the majority of the race at 645. But if you start at 645, it's that one in a million shot that you actually do it. So that's maybe not as specific as you wanted, but that is really the only way I personally believe that someone who's not intimately aware of their pacing can run a long race. I think even if you are intimately aware of your pacing, that is still the correct approach because that's the exact approach Mm -hmm. that I would take, and I do feel like a metronome with pacing. Now, do I know what that pacing would project out to for a two and a half hour race for me? I don't, I don't, right? And so I think you nailed it, man. You you said a different version of what I was going to say, which is figure out your floor. Like I know, even if it's not my day, let's say I believe I can hold 550 pace, 555 pace mm-hmm. if it's not my day. I really believe that under bad circumstances. So you use that as your starting point. And you'll, you'll understand at some point in the meat of the race midway through, like, hey, yeah, my floor, not feeling like work today. I can ramp up from here and maybe still finish with my goal pacing, which might be whatever. It doesn't matter. But I think determining your floor is actually really dang important. And there's people, I had an athlete two weeks ago looking for her Boston qualifier and, and she didn't get it. It's her second attempt and she didn't get it. And in her case... It's, well, I'm going to go out at, let's say, 7.30 pace, and it doesn't, like, I'm ride or die because I have one specific goal. And so all that's out the window, right? Like, you want to qualify for Boston in your age group? Well, you go out at pace, and it's either going to be your day, and you're going to hit it or not. But if you're going out there to run your best by feel, I think determining your floor is, is the absolute smart way to go. It's also more of an enjoyable way to go. It is. What are you looking at over there? So while you were talking, I was looking away. Uh-huh. I decided to look up the three fastest marathon times ever run on the male side. They're all negative. They're all negative splits. Three people have broken two o two: Kelvin Kiptum, Eliud Kipchoge, and Kenenisa Bekele. Here, here were the splits for Eliud. For each five k. These are otherworldly, but just think of the time in relation to the next time, rather than what it means for how fast, how yeah, depressingly yeah. fast he was running. Fourteen fourteen. 1409, 1410, 1412, 1423, 1430, 1443. Oh, those are the other way. Oh, that's the one. He went out really fast. Remember, he went through the half in that race in 59 and change. Yep. I was... 
The other time he broke 202, he negative split. Then we have Kelvin Kiptum, 1430, 1442, 1439, 1440, Yeah. It's just like even at the highest end, to your point, the people who are most dialed in still run the pace. They absolutely know they can run right up until the time that they say, all right, I'm close enough to the finish that I can just let it rip. And if I start to fade, like he ran 1354, I think. Or what What was that? It doesn't even matter. I'll just say it. It's so outrageous. He went from a 1440 to a 1422, 1430, 1349, and then slowed to a 1401. And that's a slightly downhill mile, I think, or very flat because Kipchoge went 32, 30, 43. So he was fast there as well. But they got to the point where they said, all right, I'm just going to pour it out now because worst case scenario, I still will finish okay. And that's the best in the world who run more workouts than you and I in a year than you and I will run in three years. They are doubling to tripling every day. They're running three to five quality sessions a week. They are so intimately acquainted with their pacing and they still know I've got to respect the distance. I'd rather be able to tear it up the last 10K than bleed out the last 10K. Yeah, and I think if you look at all um, world records in any event over the 1500, so 5K and up, I believe you're going to see probably eight out of 10 of those be negative splits, if not all of them. I'm almost pretty mm-hmm. sure every single world, world record attempt, which which is outlining that somebody ran it the best they ever have, right? And so point being in those longer races, a slight miscalculation on the front end will not lead to your best performance, either knowing it exactly down to like uh, the second or erring on the slight side of caution, running closer to your floor race pace, which... I make it sound slow, but that could be a 10-second window, right? That could be the difference between 5.50 and 6-minute pace. But running closer to your floor early, there's no panic button being pushed in these long races when the gun goes off. Allow yourself to work into it. You're working from the gun, but you're staying relaxed, and then you're able to tighten the screws the back half if you're feeling good, and you will still run your best. Most likely better than if you go out at or ahead of pace and slightly fade home. The way those trajectories will cross is you would have ended up passing yourself in the go out conservative mode somewhere in the last few miles and still running your best time anyways. Mm-hmm. You can push the panic button if you're at mile 20 and feeling like a boss. Fine. Push the panic button and go. But uh, generally, it's the the ways to know your body and then calculate your effort. Run slightly conservative early. You can make up for it plenty in the back half. Right. Even with just six miles to go. Think about running a good 10K versus a mediocre 10K versus a bad 10K. You're going to see 20 to 60 second swings right there. So what is five seconds per mile prior to that? You can get it all back in the last 10K pretty easily. Yep. But then we haven't even talked about passing people yet. We haven't talked about looking down at your watch and seeing these splits start to get quicker and quicker. If you're alone with yourself in a workout and you start to see quicker and quicker paces, you you start rolling. You build off that. Now imagine you're passing singles, doubles, triples, dozens of people, hundreds in the back half of Boston. Mm -hmm. You're going to feed off every single one of that. One pass leads to 10 passes. 
five seconds faster per mile is going to lead to 15 seconds faster per mile. You're just going to have chemicals coursing through your system that are not present when you are cracked and dying. It's the only way to close a race out hard in a marathon is to have something left to close the race out hard with, and then your body compounds it. It's like, all right, we're doing this. Okay, let me give you a little shot of adrenaline here. That's not available to you when you're cracked. The psychology of it's huge. Absolutely huge. Huge. Just momentum fuels more momentum. And you realize, hey, this mile was faster than the last. And I passed four people in the last four minutes. Like, oh, you start rolling like you go into Pac-Man mode. And that's the way for most mortals to run their best race. And then the other side, um, not to pivot too hard, but to talk about heart rate. um, If I were running this, I'm actually ignoring my heart rate for the most part, even though some are going to have to be very dialed, right? They're going to have to be very dialed. As long as I'm not seeing something I shouldn't given the pacing, like if I know I'm running 545 pace, which is what I would probably attempt to do uh, or under in a marathon, I would just want to make sure that it's not costing me too much too early. So I'd check in. Pace would still be my priority because I feel fairly dialed. But if I saw the cost of that being five beats a minute higher than expected, I'd instantly pivot to my floor for a while and say, okay, I'm going to calculate it back off five to 10 seconds a mile, see how I respond. I'm just going to make sure it doesn't get away from me. So I'm not living and dying by it, but I just want to make sure my goal pacing isn't costing me too much on the front end from a heart rate response. And I wouldn't expect it to, but just in case adrenaline, heat, it's not my perfect day with travel, then I would pivot. For example, for those of you looking to be real calculated, but I'm not looking at it every minute or three minutes. I'm just, I'm going to just check in on the mile marks, right? And be like, yeah, I'm within myself. I'm within myself. So some of you might need to be real dialed and create a rev rev limiter for yourself. And we will talk about that as we pivot to like looking at West Virginia, I think a little more, but um, for me, I'm not going to put too much stock into it as long as it's doing what I expect. And if it's not, I'll get ahead of it by slowing down slightly to mitigate damage later in the race, if that makes sense. It does. And it highlights the difference between the type of athletes who are going to be out there. You've run a lot of long quality workouts, a lot of 13 to 16 mile workouts. I've done one this year and it was with you. And so I couldn't do that. I don't know what pace I can keep right now. I know for sure I could just run seven minute pace. Mm-hmm. Eventually I'm going to really fatigue, but I could run seven minute pace, but I don't know what 650 would do. So what I would have to do, I believe, is have the idea that I'm not trying to run much faster than seven minutes early, but I'd probably put a heart rate cap for like the first 30 minutes at about 148 mm-hmm. and the next 30 at about 155. I'd want to get through the first hour then. Sure. And at that point, take stock of the situation and go. But because I don't have that intimate knowledge of what happens in my body between 60 minutes and 120 minutes like you do right now, I would have to set a lot of guardrails for myself. And I think I right now, I think I represent the everyman marathoner to a much greater extent than you do. I think you would represent the the athlete who has put in their big volume, put in their big workouts, and you have a number that you're fairly certain on a good day you could keep. Mm -hmm. I have a number I can keep on a bad day. I have no clue what I could keep on a good day. Mm. 
Sure. And so because of that, I have to stick with my floor for a long time. Whereas you get to, you get to play around with that middle ground. You're not going to approach your ceiling for a while, but you don't have to live on your floor the way I would. Yeah. I may start at my ceiling and if my, my metrics, my response physiologically isn't what I'm looking for, I'd pivot to the Mm-hmm. To the floor, we'll call it. And again, we're not talking big windows here. I'm talking a fifth, 10 second per mile window. Pretty tight. Right. Well, and that's the key there. You'll, the more fit you are, the more you can recover by backing off. True. If you're if you're sitting at your ceiling and you realize my heart rate's starting to spike or that was too hot of a mile, I've got to back off. You can back off for a little bit and get back under control. If I run an entire mile at somewhere in the race too hot... That's it. I might back off and feel better the next mile, but like I'm already writing this checkout. I, I might as well yeah. sign it right now that this is going to get bad. The less fit you are, the less volume you have, the less big workouts you've done, the less you can absorb a tip. You can't. It can't spike because you can't get yourself back under control because you don't have that underlying fitness to absorb it. Okay, I'm going to back, if it were me and I'm trying to run seven minute pace and I run back to back 645s, I can't rest at seven. You could rest by backing off 15 seconds per mile. I couldn't. I don't have the fitness to do so. I'd have to back off 30 seconds per mile Mm. and that would be so demoralizing. Yeah, that's a good point. There's, there's, you know, so you could fall anywhere in the gamut of things we outlined, depending, I guess you, hopefully you know yourself as an athlete a little bit enough to know which camp you're in. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that would be an important step yeah. in deciding how to approach it. And and I think that's the, the thing that you're talking. You just said it prior to this, but they're small windows, but you know what the window is roughly. Even myself, I don't know what my ceiling is, but I have a good idea what the floor is because it's it's pretty black and white. It's flattish. It's smoothish. We know the distance. When you get off road is where it really becomes a guessing game. Yeah. And we should transition to that because I want to pay that 20 to 30 minutes of lip service before we got to wrap this up. But, and it could be something as simple in either race. Now as we're going to transition to like a, a mixed terrain race, um, it could be something as simple as like, I know what I feel like when my heart rate hits 175 and it's not good. So in training, you know what it feels like. You're like, Oh, when I hit 175, I'm kind of in trouble eventually to be like, okay, I'm just going to stay like 10 beats a minute lower than that. And avoid that altogether until the end of the race. And somehow like something as simple as that, like I know what 175 feels like. I don't want to feel like that anytime early in the race. I'm going to back off and just keep something as simple as that in check can go a really long ways early. So um, let's pivot. All right. Those of you racing West Virginia, those of you with mountain trail races, uh, any sort of race in which you don't really know what you're getting. There could be 12 climbs in there and descents with junky terrain, maybe obstacles if you're an obstacle course racer. Um, let's talk two and a half hours or longer. Two hours or longer, fine. But yep. West Virginia specifically is going to be two and a half or more. Uh, where's your starting point? What's your first piece of advice to managing your effort? Because it's tricky. It is. I I don't think it's any different. I really don't think it's any different than the road in that you have to have a point where you get to in the race with options. As soon as you're just drawing dead, like there's nothing left and there's too much time left in the race for me to have nothing left, your race is done. You have nothing good left to offer. In off-road, it gets magnified even worse. The on-road marathon Ironman wall that's glorified where people go from from running to stumble jogging. Yeah, it's really apparent because everyone around you is running, but off-road it's way worse. Because like in a marathon right now, for for me, let's say, let's let's say I had run a marathon on the road the way that you and I did our long run. 
We did 16 miles. We averaged 651. We went 730, 708, and then cut down and sat in the 630s and 40s for 10-ish miles. Mm-hmm. I couldn't sustain that. I had maybe two miles gunned to my head at that pace before I cracked. I would have had to start backing off right there. So if I'm doing that, and then I let's say I do hold it for two more miles, gun to my head, and then I crack, how slow would I have to back off to be able to finish? Let's say that was six. I did 15 with you. Let's say I made it to 17, still running 640 pace. For the last nine miles, how slow would I have to run, do you think, to finish once I've legitimately cracked at the ability to run 630, 640? I think minimum 30 seconds a mile. Minimum. Okay. What do you think? And I think it would move to 60 seconds really quickly. Mm -hmm. I think by the end, I'd be fighting to run 730s. So yeah, right away, I'd back off to seven minute pace and eventually I'd crumble down to 730. That looks really drastic on the road, but it's only a minute per mile. What happens in an off-road race when you're running uphill and now you're walking uphill? (laughs) Six minutes per mile, maybe four minutes per mile. Now descending, instead of attacking the descent, you're picking your way down because you're trashed. Five minutes per mile difference. It's just, it's otherworldly the amount of time you lose when you crack off-road, even though the on-road bonk is glorified. Off-road cracking is every bit as bad, but it's more damaging because now you're going to spend an extra hour on course rather than an extra five minutes on course. It's way more. Yeah. Yeah way more costly so i'm really really slow playing it because on off-road terrain the last thing you want to do is not be able to run anymore you never not never if you're cramping or trashed in a marathon you might consider walking if your goal was to run the whole time but off-road people get reduced to walking uphill really early that would be my goals i never have to stop doing the modality i expected to do during the race look at um Pro-level marathon results from a big marathon, let's say Chicago, Tokyo, New York, London, any of the big ones. You take pro road runners and you look at the time gap of the top 10, right? Maybe you're going to see in a marathon, let's say it's a two-hour race. Oh, I don't know. From the winner to 10th place, it could be 90 seconds to most probably four minutes. Let's just say it's pretty tight unless you have one of the goats in there like Eliud and he smokes everybody by a few minutes, but let's just say there's a four minute window roughly mm-hmm. in a marathon. That's only two hours. I say only, but two hours, roughly. If you go and watch pro level trail races that are somewhere in the two to two and a half hour range, the winner in 10th place might have a 17 minute time gap in a race. That's two hours and 20 minutes. It's mind blowing. Yep. The gaps get stretched out because yes, the bonk in the marathon is glorified and it's awful. Don't get me wrong. But when you bonk in a trail race or you just start bleeding out time, it is stretched out exponentially. And in my opinion, for every person out there, the every whether you're an open waiver, competitive, or elite, the risk is not worth the reward of miscalculating early because those gaps blow mm-hmm. up, right? And you even see it in the pro level. What I'm outlining is in even the pros, the best in their domain, you see such less time being bled out in a flat controlled race versus a mountain race the best in the world compete against each other you'll see a you'll see a golden trail series race be won by eight minutes in a three-hour race like oh my god those other athletes must suck like he just walked away with it no in fact they're great and they could have won on a different day they just misfired a little bit and so that is like yeah if the pros are doing it well you're more human than they are we're more human than they are so making sure that doesn't happen to you that bleeding out of five minutes per mile Bracken is talking about is priority number one. And so I just wanted to like sink my teeth into that part of the conversation a little more. Yeah, that's perfect. 
And the response to that is, but what about bottlenecks? What about trail? What about, you know what? You know what bottlenecking does to people? It means that the people you should have been with might get away from you for a little bit. That's all it means. It doesn't mean that it keeps you like five levels below where you were. I'm trying to think of trails I've been, races I've been bottlenecked in. And I can't say it ever cost me a race because what it does is maybe it spots someone 10 to 20 seconds that they shouldn't have had on me, but it allowed me to run 10 to 20 seconds slower. And then there's, there's always time in these races to make up ground is my point. Mm -hmm. Now, if this were a 5k on the trail and they were single track early, you might have to make a business decision, but you don't have to do that in a two to three and a half hour trail race. Especially the races that we're talking about, West Virginia, there are so many places to pass. Most of these times, I always think of what would happen if you put the world champ starting in last place in the corral. Would they find places to pass on course? Of course. <laughs> Absolutely. So you could too. So instead of getting bogged down in, I, I, I'm stuck behind, this is terrible. It's, all right, I'm lowering my heartbeat five beats per minute for this next quarter mile. And then I'm going to make a little surge and I'm going to start working up through people. So I don't think in marathon, half marathon distance, off-road racing, the positioning really matters early on. We've seen too many good people decide to start back, whether it's John Albin, whether it's Hobie Call. Uh, on, the, on the women's side, you don't see it as much because typically the people who are going to win start out near the front. But for a while, Hobie and John Albin were notorious for not even starting, or John for sure would start in like the seventh wave mm -hmm. or seventh seventh uh, line at the start line. He would just move up casually whenever it presented itself. And so if you have energy to burn, you're going to have places to pass. You got two and a half hours. <laughs> Just calm, calm down a little bit. You're going to be fine. So I don't, I don't really validate the, I don't want to get bottlenecked approach when it's a two to three and a half hour race, less than an hour, maybe less than 30 minutes. Definitely. But we're not talking about that today. Right. And even if you like, you're one of those that's really confident in your fitness and you're ready to go in and rip heads off, right? Uh, in a Spartan beast distance in a race longer than two, two and a half hours on the trails, uh, your fitness has time to show through. You're not going to be able to fake that distance. Like even if you miscalculate early by going too easy in quotes, like it's going to shake itself out as it should based on all the work you've done up previously. So even if you're one of those, like I got to go out hard and assert my dominance and stay at the front or stay connected. And there's merit to that depending on your certain situation. However, like your running and your fitness does the talking in these and mm -hmm. by the time, by the time the cards are going to fall where the cards should fall based on the work you've done up to this point. So even if you're confident in your training, this applies to you. Um, we're talking, we're taking race strategy out of it. Like, let's say, you know, you're better than everybody and you're going to bury them the first half hour, get them out of sight. And then they're going to lose hope. Like, sure. There's merit to strategies like that, but we're leaving that out of this. This is just like broad strokes, managing your effort. And then if you're one of those, who's not confident, I don't know how my body's going to hold up for three plus hours in West Virginia or a big trail race out West. Well, there's your answer. Then if you don't, if you can't predict what your body's going to give you from hours two to three and a half, your answer is on the wall. It's go out conservative. If there's any question marks about what your body's going to do in late stages, your answer is go out at your floor. And maybe RP is the way to judge yeah. this. I don't know, but um, that's my sentiment on that. 100%. And I believe firmly that even if you are the best in the field or you think you are or you think you're one of the, one of the best and that you want to go out and assert dominance or run at your ceiling from the start, the downside is that if you go out at your ceiling, the only way to go is backwards. 
the only place to go is down. Like if one person passes you, you're already starting to fail. And that can get inside your head very, very quickly because running at your ceiling is not comfortable. And off-road, it's worse than on-road. On-road, you might not feel it for 9, 10 miles. Off-road, you're going to have these little spikes when you hit hills and things like that and obstacles. And you're going to be gasping early on because that's what off-road racing is. You, you spike a lot. And so if you're at your ceiling, you're not going to feel great doing it. And it only takes like one or two hiccups to knock you back down. So I believe that even the best person should wait five minutes, run at the run with the pack for two or three minutes and then go. But if you lay all your cards on the table, right, right from the start, the only way that that is super successful is if no one can match it at all from the start. Yep. Even if they can't match it and they hang with you for a while, it starts to erode your confidence unless you're a really special person. And if you are supremely talented and a really special person, you're probably not listening to running podcasts for advice on how to race. <laughs> so this probably isn't this probably isn't applying to you. And the way the human body works is that it doesn't love going zero to 100. Yep. It really, really doesn't. Even looking at the 200 meter dash, which at the elite level is done under 20 seconds, no one's running the first 50 meters as fast as they'll run their first 50 meters in a 100 meter dash. Yep. It just doesn't happen. And that's only 200 meters. So if in a 200 meter sprint, you can't go right to your max effort the entire time, why would you want to do it in a, a 20K or a 40K? And so you shouldn't. Give your body a few minutes to shift up through the gears smoothly. And then not only will your body function better, but you start playing the psychological games to people. They're running with you. They're feeling good doing it. And suddenly you're moving away and they don't necessarily want to or even have the ability to go with. So there's really nothing more demoralizing than someone just in the middle of a race making a gear change that you would never think about doing. Run away from the start gives them hope you might blow up. Yeah. If you move away five minutes in, everyone thinks, oh my goodness, they are feeling so good. And I would, I'm going to be dramatic or drastic here with this, but I would even take your, oh, run with, even if you know you could run faster in the moment or you feel like you could and you stay with them for two to three minutes, maybe even five minutes before deciding, I'm going to say something crazy. Extend mm -hmm. that out to two to three miles, five miles. Like, I know that sounds nuts. For sure. But like, you could extend that out, be like, you know what? I'm going to chill and kind of enjoy myself here. Like I'm working, but like I'm well within myself because I know if I do this, the longer I do this, I continue to have decisions to make. You don't want to make the first decision. You want mm -hmm. to make the last decision in your race. It's true. Right. You want to make the last decision. And if some guy's feeling himself or some girl's feeling themselves and they start to surge at mile three, guess what? You just go with them because you got plenty of decisions to still make. You got a whole mm -hmm. quiver full of arrows to shoot still. And so... Um, we're talking about the racing side of it, but that's also going to help you manage your effort. I want <clears> to <throat> pose the heart rate question to you in this circumstance. Okay. Cause now I'm, I mentioned to you in the marathon, I would like just cross-reference my heart rate to make sure my pacing wasn't doing something unexpected to me that day. But here now, now that I'm more, I used to not rely on heart rate at all, but in the last two years, it's been very helpful and I've raced well by checking in on it. Do you do anything with that? If you're somebody who's aware of your heart rate and use heart rate training uh, data and training. What do you do with your heart rate in this situation? If you're you, this is a tricky answer for me. For me, I don't use heart rate for off-road races other than the way you would use it on road. I use it as a like oops prevention. Mm. I check in to make sure it's not doing anything crazy, but because it spikes and dips so much in off-road racing, 
I just don't know at any point when I look down exactly what it means for me. Or if on the road I look down and I see a number, I know that's either good eh, or bad. There's really no other options. On the trail, I might look down and go, I'm not sure what it means right now because we just did this and yeah, it's going to spike and now it's going to come down. I just need to make sure the spikes aren't too costly and that it comes down afterwards. So the only time I use heart rate on the trails are for ultras and for making sure I'm not spiking and sticking. I need it to spike and come down. So I kind of use it the opposite of you. The only way that I think heart rate for off-road racing And this is going to come back to pacing at the end as well. The only way it's truly accurate is if you're consistently doing work in the style of race you're about to do paired with heart rate. So if you have done threshold work or long runs or time trials on the type of terrain doing the type of race demands that you're about to uh, encounter and you've tracked your heart rate throughout that, then you can use it the entire time. But The only thing worse than no metrics is bad metrics, Mm. inaccurate or useless. Like I don't know what to do with these metric metrics or using the metrics on a different scale, trying to apply your road marathon metrics to a trail marathon. It's not going to work out super well. So it, I don't, I can't give great answers for that because I think it depends on how dialed in is the athlete. And because I'm not doing like at my best, I wasn't running my simulation workouts with heart rate. And so I couldn't trust it on race day. I think you gave a great answer because you gave the answer I was going to give. So fantastic, fantastic <laughs> <Okay>. answer. <laughs> the best answer. The best answer you could have given, I think. Um, I've done a number of trail races in the two-hour range recently, and I've got pretty dialed in shooting for course records and having to really calculate my effort. I let my heart rate, you know what? I feel out the climbs. I let it be what it is. I try to run hard, but within myself. If my heart rate spikes a little higher than I want to see, Oh, well, it's a hill and I, it was necessary to keep my positive momentum moving forward in the race. What I care about is let's say I crest a hill at West Virginia and now we're running flat for roughly a mile. I gotta see it check itself and gradually come back down. Say I spike at 181 on a climb in West Virginia and I very well could. I gotta see that come about five to 10 beats per minute lower again as I resume some flatter running or downhill running, all I want to see is that my heart rate is responding to my RPE, meaning like, okay, I backed off effort. I did attack the climb a bit because I felt like that was necessary. But when I back off my intensity, my heart rate follows. Where I get nervous is like, I'm slowing down and my heart rate is just lagging. It is not coming down with my RPE. Mm -hmm. It some reason wants to stay up. Then at that point, I'm recalculating how I approach the next climb or the next piece that's going to require a more of a mental effort for me. Then I temper my enthusiasm. But until then, it's typically like, hey, as long as my heart rate's responding to what I perceive as effort, I'm okay. I'm going to look something up because I'm I'm on board with that. So give me one second here. Mm-hmm. I just want to make sure I'm saying this correctly. Yeah, I don't want you lying to people over there. I want, I want to be precise here. All right. I want you to be precise here as well. I'm searching the term on on uh, Strava DNF. On, for you or for just general? For me. Okay. I don't know why you're doing this. All right. So my 50K trail PR was done on a hot day. Um, I ran relatively hard. I certainly closed the last two hours very hard. Average heart rate was 145. Max was 170. Okay. Average 145 for four hours and 14 minutes. Max 170. Oh, I know where you're going. You're going to Tahoe DNF? Yeah. Next. All right. So successful 50K we're talking on the trails. 
successful. It was a good race. Yeah. Yep. All right. Now we're going to go talk. We're going to go to something that you consider unsuccessful, I believe. This was, I dropped out at 444. So 30 minutes longer of an effort. Mm-hmm. DNF'd. But average heart rate 150, max 176. So I averaged five beats higher, spiked six beats higher, and lasted 30 minutes longer. And DNF'd because I was dry heaving and going slightly... Um, hypothermic, but I had the energy to continue racing at that point. Point is, I generally, in off-road OCR races, in long races 60 minutes or longer, average a significantly higher heart rate than I will see in a flat race. Because you're constantly spiking and recovering, spiking and recovering, and working different modalities. Like your power hiking heart rate does not affect you the same as your flat road running heart rate. Because it's not affecting your muscular Uh, system the same way so there's just differences to it and so i don't know about you but i can sustain over threshold for an ocr race for up to like two two and a half hours but i can't do that on the road because it's impossible so it's just one more data point that the longer the race is the more you're going to see higher heart rate averages when you're off-road compared to on-road because on-road you're a metronome and every little piece that you go over costs you an off-road you're constantly Spike Valley, Spike Valley. We have a great email in both of our inboxes from Jeremy Whitley because we posed the Mm -hmm. question about why can you average higher than lactate threshold in a race for, let's say, 90 minutes? Uh, That doesn't make sense. Like, how is that possible, right? Uh, And then he sent us some studies on going above and below lactate threshold. Like, yes, you averaged above LT for your effort, but you also dipped well below it at Mm -hmm. multiple points in there which somehow allowed you to maybe your bucket to lactate to drain enough that you can charge up and swing harder. And OCR and trail races are a lot like that. They allow you to breach threshold for a bit. And then something like a Z wall or a descent that's too technical for your skill set comes up and your heart rate dips well below. And then suddenly your bucket, your lactate bucket emptied out enough for you to go make another big push. Then you get done with the race and you look and you're like, holy smokes, like how did I average that heart rate for this? Like, and we, we need to have him on or we need to talk about that study because it's very interesting about like it physiologically wouldn't make sense if you just see the the bullet points. Like, how'd you average over lactate threshold? That's physiologically impossible. Well, if you went in and out of it, mm-hmm. often it becomes possible. So you're right. The alarm bells can go off in long trail races because you'd see your heart rate and be like, holy man. But you have to remember on the road, you're riding the line, you're riding the line, you're riding the line. It's very different than if you're dipping right. above and below. I think that's what you're outlining a little bit. It is. For example, we had this workout back in college. We would do it every Christmas break. And it was 200 meters, sub 30, sub 30 seconds. You had to run 29.99 or faster, 200 meter jog. Repeat until you can't break 30. It was just like a hero workout we would do. Mm-hmm. And you, the goal was you should be able to hit 20 of those. I think what they said is if you can hit 20, you're going to run at least 154 that year in the 800. Uh, some guys would hit 26, 28. That's a lot of reps, sub 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you just think about what is a 30 second 200, that's a 60 second 400, which is four flat mile pace. So if we just went out and ran four flat pace until we couldn't anymore, there wasn't a single guy on that team that would make it an entire mile. Our fastest runner on the team that year was a 408 miler. I ran for 18 indoors and a 357, 1500. So call it 415 outdoors, 414, somewhere in there. I would make it at, at four minute pace, I would make it three laps. I ran a 301, 800. 
I mean 1200. So I'd make it about three laps at that. However, I think I ran 22 reps at sub 30 pace. If you can't wrap your mind around the physiology of how you can clear lactate and then work again and average higher, just think about interval work. Mm -hmm. I was running, for me, about 1,200 meter race pace, and I did 22 laps or 22 reps of that, which would be 11 400s, which would be almost three miles of work at 1,200 meter race pace. That's essentially what your heart rate is doing outdoor, off-road, on the mountains, in the trails, in OCR. You're constantly running, working harder than you could work, but then there's something else like a heavy carry that's super taxing, but like how high can you get your heart rate? Mm-hmm. Power hiking a bucket. <laughs> it's just not the mm-hmm. same effort. So that's why you can do that, which is, again, why unless you've been doing a ton of sim work, how do you accurately use your heart rate? You just can't set it and forget it. You have to have guidelines that know on this type of terrain, I need to get it back down to this. Like you said, I need to crest the hill and see it drop. Yep. Um, and I'm just going to say it right now. Pace doesn't matter. I get check-ins once in a while from athlete being like, I noticed, yeah, on the flats, I was running, oh, six minute pace or something. I was feeling good. Uh, forget it. Doesn't matter. I wouldn't even check my pacing at this point. Like there's so many factors from fatigue nope. from earlier in the race. Don't use pacing as a judge or a measure of, of effort, um, in these races, even in brief stretches, you could be under the trees and your GPS could be all messed, messed up and it just leave it. Don't even check is, is where I'm at with that. And because I want to wrap this up in five minutes, I want to shift from the physiological cues to the non physiological cues that I think is as important as anything. And, um, and I'm just, I guess I'll just dive right into it. I, you want to be the person high-fiving the volunteer, bullshitting with the guy or girl you're rubbing shoulders with early in the race, even if they're not giving you much back. You want to be the person out there having as much fun and as relaxed and loosey-goosey, enjoying the time, like Hobie called was so good at doing. You know, you see some of the women in the Spartan race field, like a Lindsay Webster or a, a number of them, all of them, Emma Cook-Clark, uh, they, they're out there smiling, laughing, fist bumping the camera, man. They're out there, even if they're faking, they're enjoying their time. There's like a relaxation component to it, which doesn't allow you to like tip over too early. So if you're planning to be out there for two and a half, three hours, and Chris Roglowski, she's another great example of that. They also are all have one thing in common. They're really successful athletes and they race well. And so like feel it out. If you're not, if you're not, if you're not, holding back enough to enjoy it early in some capacity, you're probably working too hard. And I know that's like a, a yeah. silly nuanced thing to think about. And it, it, there's no objectivity to it whatsoever. But if it were me, like I need to be enjoying myself. And that also means bringing my personality into the race a little bit. Uh, and being that guy or girl out there, because that's going to hold you back inherently. And so try to extend that out as long as you can, because at some point, like it's going to get serious. You're going to have to grit down and then you can make them your enemies. You can go from joking about how you, the water at the water station, one point to literally trying to rip their head off two miles later. That's fine. But in the beginning, I think loosey goosey laughs and jokes and just enjoying it. I still think that's the way to get to the finish line. Your fastest time in quotes on a course that's like a West Virginia or an undulating trail race. Yep, it is. When I coached high school track, one thing we really worked on was our outward appearance while we were racing. Mm-hmm. Cause there's such a difference between running next to someone who is looking like they are dead versus running next to someone who looks like they don't have a care in the world. 
you don't treat those two opponents the same way. You probably don't dare surge on a guy who looks like he's not even awake yet because you don't want to wake them up. Or when they make a move, if they make a move and they're barely even like gasping or their stride looks peppy, you might let them go. And so there's feeling good, there's faking it, and then there's not having the ability to have any say in the matter. Mm -hmm. And faking feeling good is a really powerful thing to do because not only does it affect the people around you, but internally it affects your mind. If you're pretending to be happy and jovial on course, it means you still can. We all get to the point where you get the glazed over zombie look and you don't have a say in it anymore. And the longer you can, you can extend that period away from you, the longer you can fake it and tell yourself, I'm feeling good. Look at, I'm smiling. I'm saying something to the volunteer that turns little, I flips little switches in your head and it keeps you from getting to the zombie mode. And eventually just like the road marathon, you realize I'm close enough to the finish. I'm ripping it off and I'm just going and that's fine. But some of the best races you and I have ever had, what you, you joke about it a lot, the time where I like, I've motioned and smiled to the camera after hitting a spear throw in Montana. Mm-hmm. That's what I was doing. I was convincing myself as late in the race as possible that I'm fine. And then about a half mile later, my face glazed over and I was just in it. But you need to play those games with yourself in long races to, I'm going to act the part. And as long as I can act it, I know I'm not really dead yet. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And any race in which I stayed relaxed early, try to just feel or appear more relaxed than the person next to me. They always end well for me. They just do. And yes, we're pushing ourselves. And you could take somebody saying thanks to the volunteer or giving somebody a butt slap on your way by as not taking it seriously. But after all, don't we do this for like a little bit of fun and some reward, of course, but like, and yes, type two fun at times, but maybe we could make it type one fun early on, at least for a little bit. Every race or broadcast you see of the guy charging out front in a long trail race or a girl with like purpose, they're pumping the arms, they're running hard, they look real focused. We're five minutes into a three hour race. Where do they end up? 40th place, an hour back, every mm-hmm. single time. And so I think there's just some credence to that. Uh, go have fun out there. And if you're not the jokey, laughy type yeah. who wants to do that, that's fine. But like, If you wanted to, you could. Just remind yourself of that. Yeah. You want to be partying at the end of the night. You don't want to have the best first hour of the party ever and be sleeping on the couch by the end. (laughs) Like You want to be around for the party. And the only way to ensure that is you just can't have all the fun the first 10 minutes. (laughs) Right. Like Your first hour, you can't be the life of the party. You want to be the, the guy that at the end of the party or girl, people are like, man, we're having a blast with this person. It's not the person who went the hardest the first hour. It never is. And I don't want you guys to misunderstand, like, you're still working hard here, by the way, guys. Like, this is a race. We're breathing heavy going uphill. Our heart rate's spiking. We're, like, we're working hard. We are in race mode. I'm not telling you to go out there and pretend it's a recovery run for an hour. Not what I'm saying. You should, your legs should be burning on every climb. You may question if you're going too hard in the moment, at times, early in a race. That's all normal. You should be feeling fatigued in the right ways, not in the piano on your back way. Like, I'm not insinuating go out there and just make it a joke. That's not what we're here to do. You don't travel to these races to make it a joke. Just try to stay relaxed about it early. That's all I'm saying. And relaxed doesn't mean comfortable necessarily, but it means within yourself. And I don't know how else to describe it because I don't want you to think we're telling you to go out there and run a recovery run for an hour and then race for two. Not what I'm saying. You're working the entire time. You're proud of the effort you're putting forward. You're just holding back a hair 
from what you know you're capable of in that moment. And that's what I'm trying to outline. Exactly. Yeah. Unless you're just, I want to get to the finish line, enjoying it. A race is only one of two things. It's either a test of the fitness you've built, or it's a celebration of the fitness you've built. That's the only two things that a race can be unless you're just there for the experience. You're either testing to get the most out of yourself or you're using it to celebrate how much you've worked. And either way, you have to judge your effort correctly. Neither of those is successful if you blow up early. So don't do it. There you have it. uh, We could probably find details to chat out more than what we have. Do you have do you have anything I'm satisfied with what I've contributed today? Are you satisfied with your effort today, Bracken? We're at 70 minutes. That's goes, a big effort for Training Tuesday. <laughs> it goes quick, doesn't it? Because we didn't blow our load too early. We didn't. We saved it for the end. Uh, okay. Well, good. Great. Good, great, grand. Sorry I missed you. I'm sorry you're not coming here on we- be here on Wednesday for the 5K, but Me too. I understand. I might time trial with you in spirit i might go the way i used to have my dad bring his bike to the track and just ride in lane two while i run in lane one and just try to rip a 5k there's something wrong with you if you're purposely waiting until 10 p.m on a wednesday night to time trial in 90 degree weather in the dark there's something wrong with you i mean it's it's admirable and a tip of the hat if you actually do that but that's a, it's like you could push it to saturday when it's 60 degrees and calm on in the morning but no you want to commiserate. That's right. Yeah, there's something a little wrong. I mean, we're running for fun. There's 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 a little bit of something missing there. There's some wires not connecting or connecting inappropriately. Yes, a couple loose screws and all you listening out there, including us ourselves for the way we're wired. Mm-hmm. Kirk, this is our 361st episode talking about running. That just isn't normal. <laughs> so why point. not go out and time trial at 10 p.m.? <laughs> Anybody that I talk to... If it comes up like, what do you do for a living? And I'll talk about coaching and training. And I also host a podcast, which is intertwined in it all. And they say, what's it about? And it says, it's about running. And they're like, so what do you guys, what do you talk about? Like, I was like, running. Like, we, yeah, we're like almost 400 episodes yeah. deep. Like, we just talk about, we talk about running. And they're like, how do you, like, there's that much to talk about? And I'm like, no, not really, but we, we figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I talked to someone last weekend. And they're like, same conversation. And when they asked that, I said, well, what do you do for a living? Like, I'm a mechanical engineer. So, so if you started an engineering podcast, how quick would it take before you ran out of topics about engineering? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess I could see that. A lot of wormholes. <laughs> yep. We may call them rabbit holes, but whatever there is, there's a lot of them. Yeah, that is true. Well, I guess we'll see you next week for another Training Tuesday and later this week for another Friday episode. The weekend long run. All right. Thanks for tuning in, guys. Appreciate you. 